if I'm running a discretionary program and that's going into some form of a structured product, and this doesn't happen for precisely this reason, if I choose to do something that is different than I would have done historically, then the results of that product could be very different than what I have advertised them for and I become liable, right? And so I'm forced into a quantitative system. This is actually part of the reason why I partnered with Wayne is I realized that until the rules change, there is actually no substitute to a documented quantitative process. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is one of few real independent thinkers and a student of markets and market structure, and perhaps the leading mind when it comes to how the growth of passive investing is changing markets in a way that few people realize. So I'm absolutely convinced that you will have your eyes opened from our conversation today with Michael Green of Logica Capital Advisors. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our mini-series Into the World of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. So we're super excited to dive into many different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you have done a lot of work on some of the structural changes in the markets due to higher levels of passive investing that I'm sure we'll be spending some of the time on. But let me just kick it off with kind of a 30,000 feet question, uh, Mike, and that is, where do you think we are in kind of a, a big global macro picture? Because as I've said before on, on this series, you know, it feels to me that it's kind of a blend of things we've seen before in the past. A lot of people compare this to the 30s and 40s. Japanese bubble in the late 80s, of course, the tech bubble, great financial crisis. And then, of course, we've added something brand new, namely a global pandemic, which makes it pretty unique. How do you see it right now? So I think those comparisons are often drawn in terms of, of where we are in, in relative to, to history. I think one of the things that's hardest is we all know the phrase history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so we're constantly looking for those patterns, right? I have had the view for a while that it's very lazy to compare the time period that we've gone through to the 1930s, right? This idea that we were in this great global depression following the global financial crisis. The primary pushback I'd have against that is, is the continuing growth of wealth disparity, right? Inequality has continued to expand. And the 1930s were very much a, a, an inequality equalization time period, particularly after the 1929 to 1932 time period. If anything, I think we're actually still in the 1920s and potentially uh, haven't seen our global financial crisis yet. I'm sure you follow a lot of uh, the people we follow as well, but it kind of ties in a little bit to the fourth turning from Neil Howe, where, yeah. you Neil's know, a friend of mine, of yeah. Said, yeah, exactly, where he says, you know, the first crisis that you think is the big one may actually not turn out to be the big one. That comes usually at the end of the fourth turning, which, of course, we know that he predicts to be this decade. So uh, that's uh, pretty interesting. Of course, your friend at, at Real Vision, uh, Raul Pal, he talks about kind of the three phases that that he's seeing kind of the unraveling and now we're in the hope phase of the current market and then comes kind of the insolvency phase. Do you think in the same terms or? So I, I do think there's a lot of similarities in the in the line of thought, right? So the biggest concern that I have, and I did an interview with Raul, I think it was April 8th, so fairly soon after the, the quote-unquote bottom. And 
My objection continues to be that it feels like we are projecting history onto the future, right? So we're saying this has to happen. And the challenge in comparing the 1920s and today is just that in the 1920s, we had a convertible currency, right? It could be convertible and it was convertible into gold. And so the level of defaults, the level of uncertainty in terms of people's ability to source dollars to service the debt was much more constrained in an environment of the gold clause, right? We don't have that today. And so to expect the same outcomes, to expect policymakers to sit by and say our hands are tied as they watch the potential unraveling of the system, I think is, is hard. And so I think we'll continue to get lots of signals from the market that effectively say the equivalent of, hey, pay attention to us, you have to respond, we have to do something, or that will happen again. I think we'll continue to encounter those types of crises, but to expect the same outcomes when you have a radically different currency structure than you did in the 1920s to the 1930s, I, I think feels strained. Mm. Sure. I really like the point you made about inequality in uh, crises, because normally you're right. Asset prices get smashed in crises, dividends get smashed, and you know the, the wealthier people who own those assets tend to see their, their income reducing. So that that's really interesting. It does suggest that either we're not there yet, or this, this crisis may be truly different. I want to kind of lead that into a subject that I know you've talked about a lot before, which is passive investing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it'll be my tombstone, we'll say. Yeah. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Well, yeah. well deserved. Yeah. So um, I think one thing about crises like these is that they, they may cause kind of these big secular trends that we see in things to, to sort of reverse partly or completely. And obviously there has been a, the big rise in pass, passive investing over the last well, 20 years, I guess, possibly going back further. Does this feel like there might be a change here? So there's there's kind of a little bit of anecdotal stuff going on. There's this kind of investment as entertainment thesis. You know, it does seem like there are more individual investors piling into Robinhood and buying individual stocks. And then if you you know if you're investing for entertainment, you're not going to go and buy a kind of boring kind of market cap weighted ETF. You're going to want to buy individual stocks, story stocks, name stocks, and have some excitement. So that's one thing that's going on. But I, I do wonder whether this crisis generally could cause that that trend potentially to 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 stop or even reverse and maybe there are other explanations that could be going on there so so the one thing that i always highlight for people with passive is just that it's the growth of passive is now basically built into the system right from regulatory framework all the new money that comes into the us savings and investment accounts primarily in the form of 401k's and iras are coming in in passive vehicles Right. And so this is actually by law, or not quite law, but certainly by regulatory fiat into the 401k space where corporations, because of the DOL's fiduciary rule that didn't fully go into effect, but went into effect enough that it caused the changes that have, have reinforced this. It, you know, if you are a corporation, you offer a 401k plan to your uh, employees and you offer them a plan that does not have the cheapest and lowest cost. Um, uh, index funds in it, then you actually become liable, right? You become liable not just for the excess fees, but you actually become liable for the underperformance that could potentially accrue. And nobody signs up for that. That's not what corporations do, right? That's actually why they wanted to get away from defined benefit plans. They didn't want to be responsible for the outcomes. They want to be responsible for the contributions. And so the, the entire system has aggressively shifted to converting those inflows to coming in through passive vehicles, primarily through things like target date funds. Um, at this point, we're, we're looking at well over 100% of the net flows that come into particularly the equity space and increasingly in the fixed income space are coming in in the form of passive vehicles. And until that changes, until we actually change the regulatory structure, I have a hard time seeing it reverse. So in essence, this means that the HR representative is the new CIO. Oh, that's exactly what it means. Those guys make the calls, right? They say, we're doing this, we're buying the S&P 500, or we're doing whatever whatever the case may be. And here, and you know, I live in Germany, and it's the same thing. Long gone are the days where, you know, retirement money uh, was allocated to a mutual fund manager that was kind of like, you know, discretionarily trading stocks, buying value, whatever the case may be. Right now, all of those products are linked to an index be it the Correct. DAX index or the Eurostoxx 50 index, and they may have a guarantee, right? So there's a long put option or some sort of a guarantee 
for retirement attached to that as well. But it is an index product. And all the flows happen at about the same point in time, which is the end of the month or the beginning of the next month. That That's kind of like the, the sweet spot where all the money flows. And I think what one can see, and it amazes me, is that, well, first off, I mean, this has been long reported, the average correlation and the average co-movement between stocks increases. But what you also see is that, you know, the, the breadth of the market changes. You know, all of a sudden, all of the stocks in the DAX, for instance, which has 30 stocks, are above the 50-day moving average. Yep. It happens more regularly, whereas previously, 10 years back, it was kind of like a 50-50 type of thing. Now it's, no, 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 that's not a 50-50 type of thing. That's a 95% odds that if one stock is above the 50-day moving average, all the other 29 are above the 50-day moving average too. Well, and that's one of the big legacies coming out of the global financial crisis, right? So the reason why all those products in one form or another refer to index products is because you don't want, again, you don't want to attach any form of liability. If I'm running a discretionary program and that's going into some form of a structured product, and this doesn't happen for precisely this reason, if I choose to do something that is different than I would have done historically, then the results of that product could be very different than what I have advertised them for Correct. and I become liable, right? And so I'm forced into a quantitative system. This is actually part of the reason why I partnered with Wayne is I realized that until the rules change, there is actually no substitute to a documented quantitative process. You just can't run on a discretionary basis. You can show a backtest if you have a quantitative process and an institutional investor can disregard that. But those backtests can be used for things like selling a variable annuity. Those backtests can be used for fixed income annuities. Those backtests can be used for structured products in terms of the marketing of those products. And the only requirement is that you have to stick by them. Like we've so stacked the deck against discretionary active managers that I'm, I'm not really even sure it's a game worth playing unless you choose to actually change your process to take advantage of the features of the market. And very, very few people are doing that. It's just hard. You have to bend your mind and change everything that you've been taught for the past 25 years. I mean, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk more about the effects of passive growing in terms of the equity space. But just our curiosity, are, are we seeing exactly the same trends on fixed income? I mean, is is passive also uh, dominating to the same extent? Or, or is it in fact maybe because yields are so low, uh, people say, well, better need to find a, an active manager because I can't live with, with zero. The fixed income space is about 10 years behind the, the equity space in terms of the growth of okay. passive. In terms of individual discrete allocations, there's been a tremendous amount of growth in the ETFs and the fixed income space. And in particular, they've been widely adopted by fixed income managers that use them to access some forms of liquidity. But again, if I look at the investment public in the United States, by far, the largest source of growth in the fixed income space is, is through the target date funds themselves. And so the Vanguard and BlackRock and, and capital group vehicles that dominate that space, between the three of them, they hold well over 50% of the target date fund universe. Those are really the primary sources of growth. And those have their own index construction problems that, in my opinion, actually exacerbate many of the problems that we're seeing. So fixed income, I would actually say, is analogous to the indexing of, uh, of the U.S. equity markets prior to the dot-com changes, right? There's just a structural mistake in the way the indices are constructed. And then in addition to that, I would say we have in the U.S. the fixed index annuities and the VA type of products, Correct. essentially all of which are index-linked, or if they're not index-linked to indices such as the S&P 500, they're linked to custom indices, you know, produced by QIS type of bank strategies, which themselves probably make reference to an index again. So it's, you know, self-referencing inside the product back to an index. And those products, by the way, are also strongly, strongly growing in Asia, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, to a certain extent, still Japan. So this train seems to have left the station and gained speed that more and more of the money is going passive. And one wonders, what's the end game with that? How long will that go on? Price insensitive buying and selling at settlement or close linked to an index without any consideration of, let's just call it value or whatever, fair price, right? When does it stop? When will it break? Well, that's, of course, the $64 trillion question, right? Yeah. So please tell me. Trillion dollars. Don't tell anybody else, just me. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> this is... Part of the way I always try to solve these problems is I, I take them to the reducto ad absurdum conclusion, 
right? And so one of the key differences between a discretionary manager and a, an index manager is how they hold cash or how they treat cash. And so if you think about the mathematics of what happens, a discretionary manager, and we've got our own proprietary research that we've done on this, will typically hold about 5% cash, right? Now, in order to keep up with an index, they may take that down, and we do things like track the cash balance as a percentage of market cap to give us an indication of this sort of stuff. And um, Michael Hartnett has a, a, a good piece he calls the flow show that, that tracks the level of cash allocations, and it has a consistent negative correlation with the return profile. But one of the things that I point out to Michael all the time is just that the only people that respond to his surveys are active discretionary managers, right? Nobody at Vanguard is responding. And so when he says that the market is 5% cash or 4.7% cash, what he's talking about is the discretionary managers. The Vanguards of the world run with no cash, right? And my personal favorite example, again, I go back to things like target date funds. You know, they carry no cash. The vehicles they invest in carry no cash. The only way that they accommodate rebalancing is because they have a constant flow of new capital coming in. And so you have these sorts of crazy dynamics. And if you just walk through the implications of a market that has 5% cash to a market that has 0% cash, the only way that can be accomplished is by inflating the assets themselves. Because what you're really doing is you're saying, I need to reduce the cash to zero. Well, the cash is neither created or destroyed, destroyed at any point in this process. I buy, you sell, cash is unchanged. So the only way to accommodate lower levels of cash is by driving the asset prices themselves up. And so how does this conclude? I think it concludes with the world's most ridiculous melt-up. When we do the math and walk through the implications of going from a 5% cash world to effectively a 10 basis point cash world, which is roughly the average across the index space, the market has to go up 50x. 50x, not 50%, not 5%, or anything else, like 50 times. We're talking Schiller PEs in the 500, 600 sort of range. Now, do I think we'll get there? No, because before we get there, the volatility has exploded to such an extreme that a catastrophic event that just wipes everybody out and they say, well, we're not going to do that again, right? Or we're going to freeze the market. We have to stop the market in some way, shape, or form. Like, I'm convinced that that's how this ends. So you're the school that ETS make the market more unstable, I guess, then? Well, they do both, right? And so yeah. that's the irony. When you, when, you, when you introduce an alternative approach to managing money, that has a, at least initially, it has a diversifying effect. If I have managers who will only buy when stocks are below 10 times earnings, well, then if stocks go to 20 times earnings because of some external force, the next buyer is 10x, right? So the market has to fall 50%. That's what the dot-com cycle was, by the way. If I take a scenario in which the marginal buyer is always somebody who says, I, I can't hold this cash. If you give me cash, I'm going to use it to buy. Prices are going to inflate, right? If you combine those two, you get a diverse ecosystem. And so stocks can go up and down in relatively small ranges. It's actually vol dampening up to about a point. On our math, it suggests around 30% passive penetration was the trough in terms of what you would expect in terms of realized volatility. Because you had people who wanted to sell and people who would buy without thinking about it. It was a diverse ecosystem. Now, as we're pushing out of that, we're moving into a higher volatility regime. And of course, it's really tough to diagnose this, right? I mean, I have a hypothesis. I have got models that show that this is what happens. And so far, they've been largely accurate. But man, it's awfully hard to argue that a global pandemic is actually you know, linked to passive investing per se. I feel it's very much linked to the responses that we've seen, the reactions in the market. But it, like most social sciences, it's a one-off experiment. I, don't, I, I can't repeat it and be like, okay, everybody, let's go back to February. And you know, we'll, we'll do this whole thing without, the pass, without passive or without the pandemic, right? You just can't recreate the experiments. And so you have to have a hypothesis. And, and until you're proven wrong, you keep operating on it. So it's not like 87 where you could argue that a feature of market structure, which is portfolio insurance, a lot of people probably think that was the cause of the crash. So if we go back to, say, 1929, maybe it's a bit silly comparing 1929 to now because it's such a long time ago, but I think I've seen the figures that, that stock ownership was, was lower in the sense that only about 10% of U.S. Household, households owned stocks, and now it's 50%. The difference being, of course, back then, I think most people probably owned them as individual names and were kind of actively trading the, the money themselves. 
rather than it being passively invested. Although there were a few things called investment trusts that, that were a bit strange. So do you think that would the market be more or less stable if we were somewhere between those two extremes? Or it's hard for me to get my head around the fact that individual investors, retail investors, who generally speaking can be pretty wild in their behavior, make the system less stable than, than the sort of, you know, this mental image I have of a river of money kind of flowing consistently through through the system. Well, so I, I think we have to be very careful, right? Because one, I do think that the you referred to the unit investment trust. I actually think that they are very similar to much of the financial innovation that we're talking about with passive, right? They largely were designed to deploy capital. There was far less consideration to what actually sat inside them in many cases they were blind in terms of they didn't disclose either the amount of leverage that they used etc and i think that's another component that people generally underappreciate is that while we all complain about leverage and we complain about the high levels of debt the flavor du jour of how we solve this is something like risk parity which says okay let's lever our portfolio 10x in the fixed income space right and let's add what you're actually doing is adding debt right you're adding recourse debt to your portfolio and saying that's the solution to how we trade a, a world that has too much debt. Let's radically increase the quantity of debt, right? Well, by definition, if you choose a, a levered approach, you're talking about increasing the demand for financial assets in aggregate. So I, I think there's a lot of similarities. Again, this is one of the reasons why I draw the analog to the 1920s, because I think we have financial innovation without very thoughtful application of what we're actually doing. And then in just in terms of would the market be more or less volatile? I just think it's really hard to say, right? I mean, the bid-ask spreads in the 1920s in a world that was dominated by high commissions, by restricted access, it's just really hard to actually draw a, a direct analog, yeah. right? Yeah, hard if not impossible, probably. Yeah. I mean, all those you know time periods are sort of different. There's it's an ergodic system. Well, I mean, there was way. a yeah, there was a period during the Sumerian. No, I'm joking, but it's it, you know it's. That was a joke. I'm referring to <laughs> um, Yeah, we have no idea. We really don't. And so exactly. the only thing we can do is build a model. And if that model broadly fits the data, then you know you continue to follow it. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing. I, I was I was really surprised. I I saw it on Twitter. I think last week, uh, U.S. pension funds considering to lever up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I mean. To the extent they're doing 60-40 or risk parity or whatever it is that they do with their long-term asset allocation, but they're going to go, I don't want to say all in, but they're 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 shifting up one gear, right? Mm-hmm. Because they need to deliver, I don't know what it is, seven percent. They cannot deliver seven percent in the current interest rate environment. So what do you do? You lever up. This to me sounds like a recipe for disaster. I have to agree with you. I think part of the irony is that most leverage to this point, has been held within limited liability format. And so CalPERS, for example, who is, is who the headlines were for last week, like they can absolutely buy as a limited partner into a fund that is levered 20 to 1. Right? That's, that's a way of, of tapping leverage, but it's non-recourse. What they're talking about doing is actually borrowing money that is fully recourse to the pensions and then deploying that... Like, from a risk control standpoint, somebody needs to be slapped upside the head. That's just stupid. It really is. And it only happens in an environment in which people are just so arrogant that they honestly can't think about the liability that they're creating for the taxpayer. There are so many things really to unpack with you, Mike. And now since we are talking about pensions, I mean, I'm curious about a couple of things. One is, of course, a lot of people talk about the looming pension crisis. I think actually on Real Vision, you ran a whole series yeah. on it. So I'm kind of interested in, in in your view on that. But I'm also interested in a little bit in demographics. I mean, how does that all play in? Because I imagine that the younger generations, obviously, are most likely passive type investors, robo investors or whatever. I imagine that the older generation, my age plus, maybe not so much. And then there's the whole, you know, demographic shift, the boomers retiring and needing money back. I mean, where where does this all fit in? Yeah, no, I, I think you're hitting on obviously the critical issues, right? I mean, again, we don't have a model. We can run things forward, but we have to do so with uncertainty about the asset return framework, right? And so one of the brilliant things about at least the way this seems to be structured 
is if I think the market is going to go up 50x or more accurately, you know, 20x from these levels, well, then we've solved the problem, right? It's all, it's all fixed. Let's just go levered long and everything's going to be fantastic. The problem is, though, that what that's doing is, is that's pumping up the claims that the boomers have on the system and it, that in turn then needs to be sold. And so you have this perverse impact where the money that is coming out is a function of the level of the asset price. But the money that is going in is a function of the level of incomes, right? And so when I start talking about incomes, I'm obviously talking about earnings. And those can be both on, you know, the, on, both on the corporate side and on the personal side. They're linear in their construction, right? They, they basically have to be one-to-one against an income stream. There's only so many pieces of the pie that can be split up. If we decide we're going to pay a lot more for that and we build out on the backs of young people who are deciding you know, with, through no fault of their own, right? It's simply the, the system that we've set up that 6.5% of their paycheck every two weeks goes in to try to buy stocks at higher and higher valuations. Well, they're getting less and less ownership for each dollar that comes in. And the money that is coming out is ultimately going to swamp that. And so I, to me, that's the real pension crisis is that at the end of the day, the cash flows don't match. And so the only the only solution to that is somebody else has to step in and either suspend the prices on the assets so that they can't be driven downwards, which is what I would argue we've done for the past 20 years. I think this is largely the phenomenon that we see with the Fed's reaction function. Or we could decide that we're going to replace the actual cash income that's lost at some level. The, the problem is politically, where do you pin that? Do you pin that at S&P 15 times earnings? Do you pin it at 30 times earnings? Do you pin it at 100 times earnings? The problem is, is that we keep setting that level higher and higher. The Fed's reaction function is getting quicker and quicker and quicker because this problem is just growing. People, it was insane to me when I'm talking to people who are quite a bit older than myself about pensions. And I sort of say, well, you know, pensions don't really exist. They're just a, essentially a contract between you and the younger generations as, as to how you're going to transfer money to each other. And ultimately, that, that, that has to happen in, through some mechanism, right? So in this country, I guess, we have a bigger state, state pension, government-funded pension, and any shortfall in, in, in sort of private pension income will most likely come through higher state pensions. But of course, where's that coming from? Well, it's going to come from general taxation. Who's paying the tax? It's the younger generations. The distribution of how the distribution of how that kind of reallocation of wealth from old to young happens may be different depending on the, the mechanism. But ultimately, if the boomers have got these huge claims, then they're either going to have to be, as you say, reduced somehow or repudiated, I guess, effectively, or um, there's going to have to be another another mechanism of, of getting the money out of the younger generation to, to ultimately pay it. Well, I think there's a couple of different ways it can happen, right? I mean, one is, as, as you said, we could explicitly reduce it. That's difficult to do in a democratic system. It's fascinating to watch, and this is obviously one of the implications of something like Neil Howe's generational view, right, is that ultimately there's a war between the younger and older generations. And do we choose to actually stick by that? Well, the older generations control the infrastructure. They control the political systems. At least for now, they certainly control the access to the power in the form of police and everything else. And I think we're starting to see these systems bang against each other. Historically, we have not had problems to this level with the exception of, there's just a very few empires where you have anything remotely close to this, right? The Roman Empire had achieved a level of relative affluence that it had to deal with stuff like this. And so the, the transition over the first century BC from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire is one that I continually emphasize for people, right? That we are looking at a system where what everybody is crying out is, we need a single strong individual who can take control of the system and force people to make the changes that they're refusing to make as a democratic politic, right? As, as, as the voice of the people. We're refusing to do that, so we need to have a strong... In- well, that's a dictator. I mean, that's, that's what a dictator literally is. And so I, I'm very concerned that, that we're meaningfully stressing the democratic institutions. And I would highlight... In the United States, I think this is also very true in Europe. You're seeing the discussion right now with Germany and the rest of Europe, ultimately deciding how we're going to choose to allocate those resources is really hard, right? California is broke, totally broke. 
if I look at it from a, a you know standpoint, I had a Twitter response the other day. You know, in this version of the European debt crisis, the role of Greece will be played by California, and Italy will be New York, right? And we need somebody to bail out California. We need to bail out Illinois, or we need to decide we're not going to do that. And if we choose not to do that, then there's going to be huge implications. And there's going to be huge implications if we choose to bail them out. Like we're not, we don't have good choices in front of us. And we don't have good systems for dealing with it. That's uh, essentially the picture that we're looking at here in Europe, right? With, yep. uh, where we don't have a fiscal union, we have a common currency and a common central bank, but no fiscal union, no you know centralized taxes, none of that stuff. So right. the system is under permanent tension of breaking because of the imbalances that it creates. Yes. I want to come back to is what you always read is kind of like, you know, during these uncertain times, if you need any guidance, you know, look at me, blah, 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 blah. But in markets, it's always uncertain. Even the easy peasy bull market, right? Trading is never easy. There's always uncertainty. But what I want to say is it, you know, we're getting to, to more and more levels of extremes. That is at least my feeling. When I look back over the past, say, 25 years, we've had many crises and, you know, all of that. And it's always, there's always been uncertainty, but what's happening now, I mean, every crisis that we're getting into seems to be a little bit worse than the one that we had before in terms of money printing, in terms of central bank reaction functions, whatever the case may be. So it feels like at some point we will get to this end game and something will break. Democracy will break, whatever the case may be there, there will be something weird going on. And my question is really, how would you best, from a you know asset allocation, trading, investing, trading point of view, how would you best prepare for that? Well, so that's actually why I joined up with Wayne and we chose to launch the Logica Absolute Return product, right? We've actually tried to design it to be a product that takes advantage of the features that we think are likely, right? So rising volatility, a market that is increasingly extreme in both directions, those those are outcomes that lend themselves to strategies that use derivatives. Um, and so that's what we've tried to do, right? We've actually tried to build a product that is capable of exploiting this phenomenon. It's challenging, though, because as volatility rises, the price of that non-recourse leverage, which is what we think of as options providing options. us with, the price of those begins to rise and other people begin to pursue these strategies. And so, you know, we just, we have to be thoughtful about how we adapt at every step in the process. We've gone in the period of, of you know, give or take five months that, our, that the Logic Absolute Return product has been live. We've been through almost every possible node in terms of our, our allocation schema. And as a result, we're actively involved in developing more technologies, more approaches to well, what could happen next. How would we be prepared if X happened? How would we be prepared if volatility rose from an already elevated level? There's a different answer to that than volatility rising from a very depressed level. And so we just have to be very thoughtful about how that's done. I don't think that there is any one system that you can set and forget and say, you know, here's a permanent portfolio. A lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to do that and they've used the past hundred years of data, but we've been talking for 20 minutes and I've already introduced the Roman Empire, right? So now we need 2,000 years of data, right? And I mentioned Sumeria. Let's get 5,000 years of data. And then let's consider the fact that we happen to be the only inhabited planet that we know of, right? Somewhere out there, there's probably a 10,000 or 10 million year history of, of an investable society. Maybe there isn't. Of passive investing. Passive investing. Who knows, right? And it's, just, it's intergalactic. Who cares, right? Yes. But that's part of the point. You use the phrase non-ergodic. It is a non-ergodic system. Our participation in the system changes it. And all of the models that we've adopted over the past 70 years, especially passive investing, assume components of an ergodic system. We use the phrase Monte Carlo simulations. By definition, Monte Carlo simulations assume ergodicity. They assume that the distributions are stable and unchanging. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. And so we built this giant edifice that now manages roughly half the assets on the planet under the assumption of the Earth being flat. It's not flat. 
Right? That's going to cause accidents. The more resources we allocate to a system built on the idea that the earth is flat, the more people we're going to have to put at the stake to prevent the truth from getting out. So this is just, we've built an edifice that I think is absurd. I agree. I mean, you have people like uh, Nassim Talab talking about the the massive impact of the tails, right? And he has a, a big following, but this is only one part of it. We, we know there are tails. We know tails are fatter uh, on both sides of the distribution, actually. But what you're talking about is that the distribution that we're looking at may actually be completely wrong. Correct. I think that is absolutely correct. And I think the irony is the process of building the perception that the system is understandable under some form of log normality or some form of Brownian motion, right, which is it sits at the heart of all sorts of Walrausian equilibrium models. The process of assuming that and putting capital to work under that framework, this is what I was referring to, to earlier, perversely actually imposes that framework. If I have capital and every time something moves two standard deviations down and I buy it, well, then guess what? At two standard deviations, the tails are going to increasingly be less fat. It's going to look more normal. Actually, it's going to, it's going to experience increased kurtosis, right? The center is going to be higher because there's more people engaged in the process of mean reversion. Now, all of a sudden, what causes it to break is when forces that we couldn't have foreseen overwhelm those mean reversionary characteristics, and then the market is forced to unwind in an extraordinary fashion. So that's, you know, this is very much the Minsky-type framework, right? Stability begets fragility or instability. And so we've built up this giant edifice that is just predicated on assumptions that were made because it was easy. The math is really easy with log normality. The math is really easy if we have mean reversionary behavior. There's lots of assumptions and things that we can point to. And the fact the markets largely behave that way because individuals discounted historically. So if individuals discount, if the market participants discount, then the market will exhibit mean reversionary behavior. But if the systems are built to reinforce the momentum characteristics, if the system is built to say, hey, let's reinforce these dynamics because we assume everybody else has already done this work and we put all the capital there, then we destroy the mean reversionary characteristics of markets. And that's exactly what we're seeing. You mentioned history, and I guess we all study history. We all use historical data to build our models. And we try and draw, as you say, we try and draw some analogs back in time. But one of the things that, and I'm curious to see whether I can make this fit into the discussion, and that is when we go back in time, one thing that we observe is that countries were much more individual because they did we didn't have the technology. So a lot of the time when we had a crisis, these crises were isolated. Okay, so Japan had a crisis, but the rest of the world was doing okay. And then Europe had a crisis, but other parts of the world did okay. Right now, it seems like correlations between economies have increased dramatically for the first time. I mean, it's not happening just now, but it's it's been around for only a few years in a, in a bigger picture. So the economies are coordinated. And for the first time, I think right now, we have G10 currencies. We have the interest rates pretty much at the same level. So what risk does that introduce that the whole world seems correlated in lack of a better word? Well, I think, I think you know the answer to that, right? I mean, if there's increased correlation, then there's, increased, there's decreased ability to diversify your risks, right? The system becomes more prone to extreme behaviors. Wayne has a really good uh, illustration that he uses. He says, look, if you think correlations are low at 25% or 0% correlation, well, that means things move in the same direction 50% of the time. If they're 25% correlated, that means they move in the same direction 62.5% of the time. If they're 50% correlated, then they're going to move in the same direction 75% of the time. And so the more correlated they get, the more extreme the peaks and valleys. There's very little modulation that becomes possible. And again, this just goes back to the underlying building of the, in, of the fragility of the system. If the system is predicated on the assumption that the authorities will do everything they can to keep the system in place, to maintain the current functioning of the system, there's a huge moral hazard associated with that. That's the exact same one we were just describing in terms of the mean reversionary characteristics of markets. When that breaks, right, when some external force causes that to be challenged, then all hell breaks loose. And I, I would say that this pandemic has been interesting. Like we've seen some very real-world stresses where optimized systems don't work really well. I mean, 
U.S. experienced toilet paper shortages. Like, that's absurd. We experienced, you know, shortages of very basic things like personal protection equipment for doctors. We were told masks don't help, not because it was true, but because we needed to preserve the masks for use by medical professionals, right? We didn't want to see hoarding activity. We didn't want to freak people out. And so I think there's no question that there's an extraordinary amount of fragility that we've established and breaking down those that element of cooperation, whether it's between the U.S. and China or whether it's between European states or U.S. states, all of that effectively exposes the gaps in the system. If California decides to hoard PPE and not share it with New York, then both have to supply more PPE on a short-term basis, and it becomes more difficult for an already stressed system to meet that. That's a, a reduction of the surplus that I would actually characterize. Like people talk about, and I've spoken openly about this before, people use the phrase, you know, we, we live in the age of uncertainty. That is such a pile of, you know, Dog doo doo, I guess is the uh, the technical term, right? <laughs> we live in the in the in the environment of absolute certainty. How are you going to get to work every day? Well, you get on this giant concrete structure that's been built by the resources of society, and you transport yourself in your four thousand pound piece of equipment to a parking garage where you're going to take an elevator that had to be constructed to take you up to your office. Right? You only build those systems in environments of intense certainty. I tell the story, I use the analog in places like Africa where they still wash their clothes in the river. The river has crocodiles. Well, what happens if you wash your clothes in the same spot every day? The crocodiles are going to be there. They'll be waiting for you. There's a rule that says, not a rule, but it's a rule of thumb that says you can swim across the river at a point of entry once. If you do it twice, the crocodiles are going to start paying attention, but the third time they're waiting for you. Imagine if every three days you had to change your route to the office because there were crocodiles waiting for you. That's uncertainty. And it's only when we have extreme surplus that we create the certainty that we can then turn around and first world problems like, gosh, I'm so uncertain. What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Not am I going to eat for dinner or is something going to eat me for dinner, right? It's, you know, do I want Vietnamese or Chinese or Thai? (laughs) That's not uncertainty. Still a very difficult decision. (laughs) <laughs> Always going to be time, but yeah, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I, I guess one effect of certainty, um, I'm not sure about going back to Roman times, but the Bank of England did do a paper relatively recently with interest rate data back about 700 years, and that showed a kind of slow secular decline in real interest rates globally from about 15% to where we are now, which is, you know, pretty close to zero. And I guess, you know, lower real interest rates are are a byproduct of certainty because you don't need as much of a of a, of a premium um, for for lending money. We talked a little bit about the kind of hunt for yield and um, the hunt for using leverage to do that, um, and that's you know an obvious byproduct of having this low interest rate environment. But what what else is out there? What are the other kind of carry trades that you see potentially people going into or that are already in and will, will become become overblown as a result of? on the back end of 700 years of falling interest rates that don't look as if they're going up anytime soon. So I think that's an interesting paper for a couple of reasons. And I'm actually doing some work collaborating with a, guy, with a, a Brown professor, his name is Mark Blythe, on a paper that, that talks about some of these components. One, again, remember, anytime you look at a long history of data, it's anything that, that is predicated on uncertainty, like interest rates. If you're looking at a long history of it, it almost is, by definition, going to fall. Because if it has risen, you're in the dark ages and you don't actually have the ability to access long reams of history. So you just have to be somewhat careful about the point in time. There's a reason we don't have a 5,000-year history of interest rates. The second component that I would say is is a big chunk of what drives real interest rates. And there was a really good paper out of UC Davis talking about the dynamics of pandemics back through the ages and comparing it to wars, right? So real interest rates are actually driven in large part by the availability of competing uses of capital. So if I don't have a road between two major cities or I don't have a train between two major cities, there's a high ROI associated with that. Anything else I want to use the money for rather than expanding the trade between those two places is going to have to compete with that underlying dynamic. So I think part of what you're actually seeing with the low level of real interest rates is a combination of low to negative population growth rates 
particularly adjusted for demographics in the developed world, right? Like, what's the return to widening the highway, you know, between uh, New York City and Boston? It's pretty low, right? There's not a lot of value there. And if anything, the disruption associated with that construction is far more than the value that could be created. We see this with the dynamics of high-speed rail. And so those factors, I think, largely are, are responsible for the low level of, of interest rates, the low level of real interest rates that we're experiencing. The hunt for yield, the search for yield is a second dynamic, which is that we've, by and large, chosen through policy to lower interest rates and raise the value of existing capital and lower the opportunities to invest new capital. And yet people are living longer and facing a need to draw down assets in a way that forces them to seek out forms of yield that allow them to live off of their assets. And unfortunately, the way that most people are choosing to do this, whether it's because uh, they don't understand the implications of what they're doing, or whether it's because they understand it and consider the risk offset by the socialization of losses, they're choosing to monetize greater sources of volatility. So yield enhancement strategies that involve things like selling puts or selling calls as overriding, that's just another way of creating an interest rate. So an investment-grade bond has a a functionally identical payoff to that of a deep out-of-the-money put on the S&P 500. You capture a a little bit of premium that you amortize over time, and you, you you get a fixed income component to it, and your prospect of loss is quite low. So what we're doing when we decide that we're going to lever up investment-grade bonds is all we're doing is we're saying, okay, let's sell lots and lots of puts. Or if we move to high yield, all we're doing is is we're shifting that strike closer to the money. If we decide that we're going to lever up equities, then theoretically we're actually moving to selling at the money options. And so all of the, you hear people talk about it all the time. I'm going to sell one put and buy 10 calls. Well, guess what? You just, you know, you just sold a put, right? You basically sold a near-the-money put that potentially creates nearly unlimited liability for you. And so most of these structures, in one form or another, are undoing a feature of the 19th century that dramatically increased risk ta- actual real risk-taking activity, which is the introduction of the limited liability corporation, the introduction of what we classically think of as equity. We're now in the process of trying to convert all that back to a Lloyd's of London, right? If I write puts on a stock, I have a very different profile in terms of potential losses than if I actually own the underlying. And one, the most I can lose is my investment, and the other, I could theoretically lose many, many times the margin that I've posted against it. So I think we're in a process of returning risk and putting more and more risk onto the household, onto the individual investor with the presumption that the state is going to be there to bail them out. I agree. I want to, you know, coming back to the put selling, I completely agree. The volumes of what I hear from speaking to some of the dealers on systematic selling of vol and systematic selling of -of out-of-the-money puts in particular, they're not back to the levels that we saw in January, February, but they're substantially up from where they were, say, two or three months ago. So the, the memories of those that have been hurt seem to be super, super short. And even though they've been hit on the chin, it seems they just don't care. The The addiction of to getting a yield and generating a little bit of extra income, be that 2 or 3%, is kind of like blinding them to the risks. Again, I think I would almost flip that and say that, the, that that is actually a byproduct of the memory is getting, quote unquote, longer and longer, right? So if I've got a 50-year history of vol events, and after every single one of those vol events, it was super profitable to sell volatility, which is somewhat by definition, because if it wasn't, then guess what? The world ended, right? So like the somewhat terminal event anyway, right? Well, if you have that quote-unquote certainty associated now with a 50-year history that says this is what happens, and you don't have any deep understanding of why this happened, or the fact that you're observing this that this happened means by definition your data set is skewed, then you become more confident and this is what we've been taught. I mean, there's an entire field of behavioral finance and behavioral economics that tells us that all the cautious behavior that we engage in, right, is foolish, right? We've programmed the machines to intentionally ignore this. And so by definition, it's going to look like our, 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 our memories are getting shorter, but in reality, we're more reliant on a longer data series of history. Good point. You touched briefly on um, 
on interest rates, we talked about interest rates coming down and historically has gone down. I couldn't help notice that Jeremy Siegel came out this week on Barry Ritzhall's uh, podcast saying that he wanted to go on record or he had just gone on record saying that he thinks interest rates have uh, bottomed for a generation at least, maybe even forever, which is quite a bold uh, claim. Of course, he could be right. I'm curious to know where you think or how you think a potential regime shift in interest rates. I mean, obviously, interest rates historically has gone in cycles. This cycle is a little bit longer than usual. Nevertheless, we don't really know if the cycles have, have broken. So there is certainly a, a, an argument for for higher interest rates. Maybe not in the short end where central banks are in control. And of course, I know they want to try and have some kind of yield curve manipulation going, going on, but they may not succeed in that. What? How do you see the whole interest rate spectrum? So, first of all, I think it's impossible to make that type of call or forecast. I think it's tempting to to make that sort of observation when you have an environment of negative interest rates. To be clear, I think negative interest rates are absurd and that they're a view that I articulated back in 2015 is now, I think, increasingly accepted that they're ultimately harmful to the banking system, right? That they create a tax on the banking system. I would just phrase it differently. I mean, what, what would you call anything in which you give a registered agent of the government 100 bucks and they give you back 99 Right? We call that a tax. And so negative interest rates are just a form of taxation. We've recognized that for a variety of reasons, primarily because of the collateral basis of a credit system, right? That, that we can charge people negative interest rates for holding that collateral. We can charge them a tax on that collateral. Um, now, that's caustic to the banking system, and it ultimately inhibits risk-taking. Um, but we are able to do that, right? We could also make it very explicit and say, hey, if you want to maintain a bank charter, you're going to have to pay a million dollars a year or $10 million a year or some scaled to your assets framework. That would be the exact same thing as saying we have negative interest rates. And so as you would expect in that type of framework, we see the banking systems getting hollowed out. We see them consolidating. We see fewer local and small banks that are ultimately predicated on the idea that they can earn a return on the capital that they're investing because governments are choosing to tax them out of existence, right? And so the systems are consolidating and by definition becoming more fragile. And so is there a limit to that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately we will enter into a regime of capital scarcity. Do I think it's possible to pick that it happened now versus it's going to happen five years from now versus it's going to happen 10 years from now? I just think that's there's a huge element of hubris associated with that. And by and large, you know, I think Jeremy Siegel's long run type forecasting, it should be clear, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical that it works. Yeah, I, I'm not, not really a question as I guess we're almost out of time, but an observation that, you know, when, when you're actually running money or tra- trading, you worrying about trends that are going to happen three, four, five years in the future is a little bit pointless. I think there's that, but I also think, so look, The one thing that I will say, and I do think that this is actually really important, is when you think about dynamics of things like risk parity, I think the market is already pricing in elements of that. Post-1998, it became the response function of the central bank, the only one that really matters, which is the Fed, that anytime something goes wrong, they're going to cut cut the price of money, they're going to reduce the yield, right? So what does that actually do? That means that bonds which go up in price, risk-free bonds, which go up in price when the interest rate is cut, now have a negative correlation with risk, but a positive expected return as long as they maintain a positive yield. Modern portfolio theory tells you that the optimal portfolio in which there is something that has negative correlation with risk yet offers positive return shifts from a backpack problem, a 60-40 allocation, to a levered portfolio. Now, what happens, and, and, and I would argue that this is actually the core of the reason why we see negative term premium in the United States, right? Because people are increasingly paying for that put. It's an explicit acknowledgement that there is value to that 10-year bond because of the duration and the response that it has in your portfolio. If we move those interest rates negative, then guess what? All you have is puts. Because as a negative expected return and a negative correlation to risk, all of a sudden, we have to switch back to the 60-40 portfolio away from the levered portfolio. That creates a net decrease in the demand for financial assets. So I think the end game is relatively close to this nonsense of, hey, we're going to cut interest rates every time something goes wrong. But I think the irony, of course, is that almost nobody thinks about it in those terms. 
we tend to think about it as, well, how much yield is left? How much yield can we get? That's not the value of that asset. The value of that asset is, is that you've got a positive expected put. And we're close to the end. I hope so. Yeah, maybe in the U.S. interest rates are going to stay above zero or about there, and then, uh, and then the other, the other measures maybe yield curve control or some form of MMT. We'll see what that brings. I, I know we're almost out of time, and I, but you you just brought something up that I think is really important. I do think it is important to distinguish MMT between a description of the financial system and the monetary system, which is what it really is, and prescriptions around what we can do with that, and so. I hear people use the phrase MMT all the time to talk about, well, this is where we're going. No, that's where we are. We are in an MMT system. There is no convertibility. There is The only way that dollars are created is because the government decides to spend them and put them into existence, and taxes are then a means of mopping them up, right? Interest rates in that environment are just another form of fiscal policy. But if we choose to actually believe MMT, Peter Thiel, when I was working for him, had a great line on this, which is, I think this might accurately describe it, but if anybody actually tried to run a government this way, it would be the end of the system. And I, I think that's really critical that we have maintained these convenient fictions to prevent governments from spending money in the way that they want, in any way that they want. Right? We've created restrictions. Initially, we had the gold standard to limit the ability to increase the quantity of money. So the governments had restraint. We then decided debt provided that tool. Well, none of those were actually true. It really is just a question of what's the productive capacity. And so the MMT is right, but it offers almost no prescriptions for how that money should be spent. And so by handing it over to the politicians, we're at least in a situation where you could see outcomes of how that money gets spent that we've never predicted. Yeah, it seems those restrictions that you're referring to, they become weaker and weaker and less and less. There's more leeway in the way the money gets spent. In the U.S., you've received your, I'm, I'm not sure what the name of those checks were, signed by Donald Trump. You know, it's a form of the helicopter. Yeah, paycheck protection. Right, a uh, form of yeah. helicopter drop of money, essentially. Right, I mean, so we're, we're you know, the, the same seems to be happening here in Europe. We're, we're going down that route where things that you thought previously impossible all of a sudden start to become possible because those restrictions that we imposed on the system that everybody believed in all of a sudden, there's a reason to do away with them, and people acknowledge it and just get get on with it. Yeah, I I, I think it's more pernicious than that, right? You you start your children off believing in Santa Claus, not because you actually want to lie to them, but because it's a convenient reason for why they should be nice rather than naughty, right? Oh, Santa's keeping a list, right? Well. By the time they realize that Santa Claus may or may not exist in the real world, I'm not going to spoil this for any five-year-olds who are watching. <laughs> That's how talk it old. <laughs> yeah, that works fine. Right, But by the time we get to that point, they've actually already established norms of behavior. So it's, it, it is a convenient fiction to say, well, government spending is limited by the quantity of debt that we can issue if it's done in fiat terms. Right? That's a convenient fiction, but there is actually value to the restraint associated with that belief, right? And so my, my, my fear is, exactly as you're saying, the more we recognize, well, there is no limit based on the quantity of debt, right? Or the need to service debt that's written in Uncle Sam's script, the bigger the risks are that we actually have uncontrolled government incursion in our lives. Well, it seems like the big reset comes the day when... Uh when we lose confidence in that notion that you can just keep adding and adding debt, uh, you know, but we're not there yet, it, it would seem. I would flip it and say that moment comes when we realize that there's no reason for us to actually pay our taxes. And if there's no reason for us to pay our taxes, either because a foreign power has invaded or because the government is illegitimate in terms of its claim on force, then that problem is here. I. The concern that I have, honestly, is just that, if anything, we're showing the exact opposite, right? I mean, we've become, in the United States, in a, in a way that I don't think anyone could have forecast. I think in Europe, you know, you, you were further along this path in a lot of ways. My kids said to me going into the, the coronavirus dynamic, like, how do we protest? If we're not allowed to go outside, if we're not allowed to say we object to this, if we're not allowed to say that we can't gather together and say, hey, we shouldn't have schools shut down. If you if there's no mechanism for that, 
how do you avoid paying your taxes? Well, it's very convenient. I mean, I know this is a completely new discussion. We could spend another hour or two with you, Mike. But uh, I mean, it is another discussion, right? That that what the pandemic also did was it kind of took away some of our ways of, um, as you say, of protesting and saying, no, we, we don't agree, right? Right. And that's an interesting concept, which a lot of conspiracy theories have their own thoughts on. But let's leave it with that. I mean, this this was really great, Mike. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really do appreciate it. And I'm sure all our listeners do as well. And by the way, make sure to follow Mike's work on Twitter, Real Vision, and his new venture at Logica Funds. From Rob, Moritz, and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro mini-series. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.